Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. I always make the mistake of singing my lungs out <laughs> in both services, so by the time I get to the second sermon, <laughs> uh, but thanks, Gabe. Thanks for the worship team for seeking to bring us into the presence of the Lord this morning. Um, we, we are in uh, Luke, and a couple of weeks ago we saw in Luke chapter 5 Jesus make a pretty clear statement. He is going to put uh, new wine in new wineskins. And it didn't take long into the ministry of Jesus where they understood that a, a, a new kingdom was unfolding, a new king had come, and uh, things were going to be different around here. And Jesus um, did so, was very clear in coming on the Sabbath day and making a couple of Sabbath corrections. And, of course, the Sabbath being what it was um, to the Jewish people, a sign of their covenant relationship with God, it became a touchstone point of reaction against Jesus. It's kind of strange, I know, for us to look at the end of that section that Samantha just read and see in verse 11, they want to kill Jesus for uh, healing a man on the Sabbath day. And we kind of look at that and go, man, those guys have issues. So I just want to say to you, uh, these guys have issues. That the purpose of reading uh, this text of Scripture and studying it together is not to feel self-righteous when you look at the Pharisees. It's to feel self-righteous as you look at the Pharisees and run to the only one who can be your righteousness. Uh, to run to Jesus Christ. And so last week we saw in the first section as Jesus began to recalibrate the Sabbath, he pointed out to them as he came to them that he had come to save us from trying to find and secure our own rest. And so the Sabbath had become a series of laws, a regimented uh, uh, ritual within the lives of the Jewish people where they thought that if they could guard it and protect it, they could prove themselves as righteous. Jesus came and told them that there was a rest that had not yet existed since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. When they fell, rest was gone. The curse had come. With the coming of the, of the law and the covenants that were given to them, they did not find rest because they broke the covenant. Uh, when David, uh, well, when Joshua took them into the promised land and the kings came, there was no rest in the promised land. And, and we know the stories of the kings. We're going to see one of the kings, Jeroboam, a little later in the message. He doesn't do a good job of it. It isn't until the coming of Jesus, we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, that we find where our rest is from, where our real Sabbath is. It's not in the laws of the Sabbath. It's in the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we have this great Lord, the Lord who has come to give us rest, giving us rest by taking the yoke of our sin, the burden of our sin upon himself, dying on a cross and being rose from the raised from the dead, triumphant over sin and death, and in him by faith. That's what Hebrews taught us. Our, his, the good news of his work is joined with our faith that we enter into rest. That's how you enter into rest, not works, but by faith. 
and we come and hold fast to the confession of our faith. Jesus Christ has said it is finished. And if he has said it's finished and the Father has accepted him and raised him from the dead and seated him, we are not to argue. It is finished. We hold fast to that confession. And then at the end of that, when you're struggling with your righteousness, trying to hold it together, when you're weary and tired in your own works, we're told, run to Jesus, seated at the right hand. Let's go to him. We have this merciful and faithful high priest that we cry out to, and we say, Jesus, help me, because I am a weary sinner, and I need an all-sufficient Savior. Don't you agree? Don't we need that? So that's what we're called to do in this first section on the Sabbath. But here's the other thing. And so last week I wanted to tell you that I want Waterbrook as a church, I want all of you as individual Christians to fight the fight in 2022 of finding your rest in Jesus. This is not a one-time event when you're converted. This is the battle of your life. Coming to Christ and staying in the rest of Jesus. The accuser comes, the guilt comes, the shame comes, all of that comes upon us. We need to remind ourselves repeatedly, Jesus is the Lord of Sabbath. He's our rest and flee to him. So that's the first part. Uh, so here's the other heart surgery I want you to work on or have the, pray that the Lord would work on. Not only do we struggle when we look in the mirror at the baggage of our sin, the shame and the guilt, but the other part of it is we have trouble. I have trouble with your sin. You have trouble with my sin. It's not just the sin inside me that gets me in trouble. It's me walking around looking at a world that is tainted by sin. And so we live in a culture that has come, become incredibly cynical. And isn't that the atmosphere in which we live? I was talking to John the other day, and I said, you know, the Bible says uh, in Scripture, it says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than 99 who don't need to repent. Isn't that great? That, that if you're repenting today, I can tell you this. It, you, you have not heard worship like worship in heaven around the lamb who was slain. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. But on Twitter and in this world, there's more joy over one saint that falls than 99 that don't. We, we, we can live in this atmosphere of mistrust, this mindset of cynicism, where we're just waiting for people to fall. We're just expecting people to disappoint us. And the danger in both of these things I, I wanted to point out is it's not just about us. We're on a mission. And we're on a mission going to the world to tell them there's a Savior who has come into the world. That's what we saw in chapter 5. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what we're going out to announce. And Bruce uh, headed over to the Middle East over Christmas time, and he was in an Islamic country trying to share the gospel, and he, he talked about the cynicism that had pervaded the religion of the world. He was up in a, in a city in a mountain sharing the gospel. It was dismal, and he talked about the, the Muslim call to prayer going out. And as the calls to prayer went out through the day, he said nobody responded. Not like you would expect because they were refugees from Afghanistan who had been abused by the Taliban. They were uh, refugees from Iraq who, who were afraid to go home in case they faced ISIS. They were refugees from Iran, and they were caught in this no-man's land. But they're terribly disillusioned with religion. Religion has created in them a, 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 a guardedness, a fearfulness. I just want to say to you, that's not just true of them. That's true in America. That's true here. I fully suspect, I fully expect that most of you are guarded against me as a pastor. I don't have a problem with that. 
the only reason I have a problem with it is that if we allow cynicism to saturate, if we allow it to settle into our hearts, we stop believing that Christ will save sinners, the worst of sinners. We start seeing sin rather than seeing the Savior. I want to give you kind of a definition of what I, well, there's probably more than one definition, but a definition of cynicism. Cynicism is seeing the depth, the depravity, and the disappointment of sin as greater than the grace and power of God in Christ. Right? The moment you start living your life protecting yourself from disappointment in engaging people, the moment you move into cynicism, here's the thing. You are going to not be in the place where God is going to move you because God loves to go where you don't expect. God loves to deliver where you doubt that there will be deliverance. Isn't that the truth? Because salvation is of the Lord to the praise of the glory of his grace. Did he save Saul of Tarsus? Right? Why did he choose Saul of all people? Because he had been voted in his yearbook as the least likely to become a Christian. Right? Not me. I'm going to the top of the rung of the Jewish ladder. I am going to be the Pope of the Jews. That's what he said. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. He was righteous. He was a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees. And that's who God went after. And praise God, there were just a few insignificant people sitting around when the Lord called and said, I want you to meet up with him. Have a talk with him. He's sitting over there blind. <laughs> He's had an encounter with Jesus, and you need to go with him. And so this is what I want to do, and I want you to see in this text of Scripture. Jesus isn't going after the Sabbath because he's just trying to reorient religious laws in a different way. Jesus is going after the Sabbath because Jesus is, go is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's going after sinners. And he wants us to see sinners as possible to be saved because that's why he came. And we've been singing it all morning, right? We've been singing about the power of Christ, the hope of God to triumph over sin. And so here's a couple things I want you to do right now. Number one, I, if you are sitting here and you are saying, man, I am too far gone, listen to Jesus today. Not me. Listen to Jesus today. Uh, your cynicism might be turned inwardly. Let, let Jesus tell you there is forgiving grace in Christ. When he said it is finished, he meant sin is paid for, full on the cross, and you can be forgiven. I want that to be clear. But here's the second thing I want to ask you. Where is your cynicism? And uh, again, I'm, I'm going to say this. You have it. I have it. There's a person there's a people there's a place where you don't think it can happen the thing I love about God is he loves to go where we say he can't he loves to do so here's what we're going to do we're going to pray uh, and invite the Lord to do heart surgery so I'm going to do that I'm just ask you to take a moment just pray you may know some of you may not but some of you may know where cynicism has taken root in your life Father, Jesus is worthy of our faith and trust. His kingdom is made up of the most unlikely. There are some pretty evil people who are worshiping the Lamb. 
I agree with Paul. I'm the worst person I know, the chief of sinners. Holy God, helpless sinners, thank God, Jesus, that you are not cynical, but mighty to save. Thank you. Help us, help us, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the purpose of just overstating my point this morning, um, I do not want to trample carelessly over your injuries. For those of you who are battling cynicism, I want to help you. And so just if that's, if that's a battle for you, if it's a struggle for you, if I say something in any way that indicates that Christ can't help you or that I'm being self-righteous and pointing my finger by tone and so on, because sometimes I can't control my tone, I, I find myself going, whoa, bring it back a little bit. I want to say to you, there is grace for the cynic. Christ came to save cynics. Christ came to save sinners. And so I want you to hear that today. So let's go into this text of Scripture. First thing I want to point out to you is the posture of cynicism, the posture of cynicism. And so if you look at um, uh, this text in Luke chapter 6, and again, let me remind you, Luke is a man on a mission. Luke and Acts is, let's go, let's go get the nations. Let's go get them. He's a man on a mission, and so he's got to deal right up front with the things. The, the reason the mission of God doesn't happen is because of what's going on in the hearts of God's people. And so he's going for the jugular, so to say. He's coming in to deal with our hearts. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 1, or verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So do do you see what's happening here? They know there's a withered man. They expect Jesus would heal that kind of a man. They don't care one iota about the withered hand of the man that's been suffering there. Their posture is to catch Jesus committing a Sabbath foul. Uh, failure, a sin. That's what they're waiting for. They can't wait to see him fall because then they have a reason to, uh, to accuse him. That, that's, that's the work of Satan, by the way. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And that is when we look like Satan, when we're in that posture. And you and I need to realize that we often want to do the gotcha, I told you so, I knew it. My dear friends, it should cause us to weep. should cause us to weep. Somebody falling and failing should remind us of ourselves and should point us to an all-sufficient Savior. So they were watching. And look, look at what it says. I want to point out one little phrase and just think about it for a moment. Verse 8. But he knew their what? Their thoughts. So cynicism really is this inward battle in our thinking, in our hearts, where we want to justify our righteousness by pointing out somebody else's unrighteousness, right? That's an inward struggle in our thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. The word dialogismos in the Greek is a word, Tom Schreiner says, always in Luke's gospel refers to evil thoughts. So cynicism is an expression of inward thoughts, evil thoughts, unbelief. Cynicism really is unbelief in God and the gospel. 
It's an evil thought of looking for sin rather than longing for a Savior. How should have they been thinking? I hope he heals them. I hope he sets him free. What are they doing? I hope we catch him breaking the Sabbath. There's the perversion. They become cynical in that way. And so here's, here's the difficulty. We have this cauldron of inward struggles. And I just want to say this. this is, I'm trying to be compassionate here because we all have it. We get wounded in our lives. And the problem is that wound, if it is not rushed to Jesus daily, regularly, can go inside and fester. And then we start looking at the world with a disdaining look, glance, a suspicious eye. And suddenly we're not available to minister to the broken. Right? That's what happens. There is these dark thoughts that exist in us. When I was uh, up in Canada, when I pastored in Thunder Bay, basically all of Thunder Bay is either on rock or muskeg. And I, and, I, and I, as some of you guys know, I'm a terrible golfer, but I like to golf. And so muskeg is like this moss, you know, that is, has roots underground. And so you'd be out teeing off on the fourth uh, tee-off box, and you'd look out, and there'd be a puff of smoke, a mini volcano or something coming out of the middle of the fairway. And you're thinking, you said, oh, somebody must have been smoking. And uh, the guy up on the green probably tossed a cigarette out and it went down and started a fire. But that's not what would, wouldn't be treated that way. Suddenly you would see a golf cart of greenkeepers, a couple of young guys would come rolling up on their golf cart, but they had like a barrel filled with water. And this is a little smoke coming up. And they would like hit it with shovels and then unload the barrel of water into that little hole. And so I found out by talking to them when I got up them saying, what's going on? I said, did somebody drop a cigarette here? Just those guys, you know, like that. And they go, no, no, no. He said, probably yesterday or the day before somebody dropped a cigarette two holes over and it burnt down under the ground and smoldered and then it would pop up. And if it was dry season, I'd tell you, you'd be golfing and there'd be little fires coming up here and there in the middle because underneath the golf course, the muskeg was burning. There was a, a smoldering fire that had been started way back here. Friends, let's be honest. Some of you got burnt over here and it's been smoldering all over underneath in your thinking and in your hearts. And that has put you in a position that it's funny where the smoke will come to the surface. Right? where the cynicism will pop up. It'll be in a place that has absolutely no relation. Sometimes you're looking at your spouse and your spouse is saying, I wasn't there, right? <laughs> that wasn't me, that was 100 years ago, right? But you're going, yeah, but you sound just like him or her. Right? You have all these smoldering things that come up because somebody comes in a position of authority, somebody's in a position of ministry, somebody's in a position of trust, you're never gonna be stupid like that again, right? You, you wrong me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That's cynicism. Cynicism is saying, I'm not going to let in and get burn, burn me again. I'm not going to. So we start living our lives with suspicious minds, evil thoughts, just saying, I'm not going to let myself venture. In fact, what we do, I think, in cynicism is we just decide, uh, we decide to be disappointed in advance right? I'm just going to let down my, uh, my disappointment now, and so then I won't be disappointed later when it actually happens, and I can say, see, that's what I told you, right? That's what we do, but in our heart of hearts, there's a lot of smoldering muskeg, and we need the gospel grace to come in 
and deal with it. Let me give you a few things. Let me give you a quote from Peter Adam about the danger missionally with not dealing with cynicism. He writes, cynicism gives us the luxury of being right without the responsibility of working for change. I told you so, as if that's the end of the deal. It gives us the pleasure of effortless superiority. High standards, which are unproductive, are destructive. Got it? Both of the cynic and those he or, sh- or she or he despises. So here's what goes on. When cynicism festers in me or in you, the problem is it, it, it has a double damage. Number one, it toxifies me inwardly and it spreads within my own heart and mind and secondly it does damage to the person who needs grace Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom you and I are a big mess in need of him and so here's some of the the ways those I I just want to point out the the dark thoughts the difficult thoughts of cynicism number one it's an expression of pride it's spiritual pride because we're seeing other people's sins while we're sinning. It's an expression of selfishness because we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And we're looking out for our own interests to protect ourselves rather than having the mind of Jesus Christ, who although he was equal to God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of man, becoming a bondservant. And, and serve God even to the point of obedience to the point of the cross. If Christ was a cynic, there'd be no cross. But he was mighty to save. Aren't you glad for that? It's anger. Cynicism is often anger. Usually it's a response to an injury or an injustice and we're angry with God, ourselves, and others. At the heart of it, you're not trusting God. Right? Because you were there. And, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of it all. That I'm just trying to help you wrestle it out with God because God was there. That's the, for some people, that's why cynicism is actually simmering there because their problem isn't with people. Their problem was with the God who let that happen. And we need to help each other. We need to sing. We need to read scriptures. We need to pray for one another because the, the wounds are deep and the darkness is dark. But there's a glorious day of hope in Jesus Christ. It's impatience with people and God. Aren't you glad that Joseph, (laughs) or Joseph and his brothers, that he didn't turn cynical? Right? After all that he went through, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and acted in mercy towards his brothers. It's unbelief. We can't imagine that they meant it for evil, God meant it for good, that somehow that this can work. This this is, I don't don't want to be dismissive or careless in this because this is real. But let me at least say this. The good news about the gospel is that God can take our worst injuries and turn them for good. But I don't want to say that lightly like I know the pain or the difficulty of it. I just, I just know that one of the things that helps us get through is that none of our pain is wasted and none of our tears are ignored by the Savior. Is that helpful? Amen. And so you just need to come at that. So, so here's the first thing. That, that's... That's sort of the, 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 the posture of cynicism. Cynicism is self-protective. Cynicism is looking for faults. Cynicism is not expecting grace. That's kind of the, 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 the posture that we find ourselves in. Here, here's the purpose of the Sabbath, okay? And uh, so Jesus is using the Sabbath 
as an illustration, it's, it's very personal. He comes in. They know the man with the withered hand is there. Jesus comes in, and he's, the, everybody's aware of what's going on. It's like a gunfight in the OK Corral. Everybody's just like, you know, they're looking at each other, and they're seeing each other. Jesus is very intentional here, but Jesus asks a question. What's the question he asks? It says in verse 8, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and stood there. Now, uh, what I want you to see is going on. This man did not ask to be healed. Jesus knows that he's a pawn in their plans, but Jesus is going to do a redemptive work in his life in order to teach a principle. So he invites the man, even though he didn't ask to be healed, to come and stand in front of him. Stop and wonder, what was it like for that man to feel the tension in the room as he's standing up there? Now, thank God Jesus loved that man. But he's standing there, this is going on, and then Jesus poses the question. He says in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And then it says right after that, it says, and, and, uh, and after looking around, he said to him, stretch out your hand. So there, there is a pregnant pause here. Jesus pulls the man up. And he looks at him, he says, no, what's the point of the Sabbath? To heal or to destroy? What's the point? To save life or to destroy life? What is the question obvious to us? Jesus is making what an obvious point. The point of the Sabbath was not that God needed the Sabbath. We needed the Sabbath. We needed rest. We needed restoration. There is in the Sabbath an anticipation. That, that's what we talked about last night. He is the new David. He is the son of man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And there is a day when the curse will be reversed. The Garden of Eden will be restored in a new sense, in the new heaven and the new earth. And he has come to make all things new and it's found in him. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is rest and restoration. That's what he's come to do. He's done this. But there is a pause. And he asks the question pointedly. And then he looks at the man. And he sa- it says, verse 10, After looking at them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they all cheered with joy. I'm just checking to see if you're awake, so. Uh, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They now wanted to destroy. Who's the destroyer? The Apollyon, right? Who is the one who wants that? This is demonic. This is in the spiritual realm. This is spiritual warfare that's going on. They want to destroy Jesus because he, he, he healed a, a withered man's hand. But you and I need to stop and realize there is something going on in this event that's bigger than Jesus just healing the man. Jesus is showing the Pharisees and the scribes their hearts. The reason he pauses, and he's got this man with the withered hand, is he's wanting them to notice the withered hand and to remember their scriptures because they're experts in the scriptures. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man with a withered hand. And Jesus is making the point, you are the man with a withered hand. 
It's not this man who has a withered hand. Everyone pointing the finger has lifeless hands that are trying to point out the fault in someone else. So I want you to take your Bible and go to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. As you know, I said that earlier, it didn't take long for Israel and its kings to fall apart rather quickly. After David and Solomon, the kingdom divided. And when Rehoboam went one way and Jeroboam went north, Jeroboam had the audacity to create a worship center on the northern kingdom with golden calves so that the people in the northern kingdom wouldn't feel the need to go down to the southern kingdom and he could maintain his kingdom. So he creates false worship, idolatrous worship. And in chapter 13, God sends a prophet. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. We talk a lot about what he's, what's going wrong here in the whole system, the king offering priests. Well, there will only be one king who would be a priest who was qualified to offer an offering. That king is Jesus, who is both our king and priest. And the man cried against the altar, the prophet did, by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it, it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the son of man, or sorry, heard the man of God, which he, uh, uh, which he cried, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. What happened in that moment? And behold, it says his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up and he could not draw it back. And the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out on the altar according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, please pray for me. <laughs> Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored and it became as one before him. So here's this withered hand of Jeroboam pointing at the prophet of God saying, um, get him, seize him. That's really very similar to the tone on the Sabbath in, the, in this scene in Luke chapter 6. Very similar. But I want to tell you an additional, because he's, I believe he's pointing them back to this story. There's a weird story. You ever read the Old Testament and just said to yourself, that's bizarre, right? You do your devotions and you're thinking, okay, God, what do you want me to do with that? This is one of those chapters where you're reading the Bible and you're going, I have no idea what's going on here till I came to this text of Scripture. At the end of 1 Kings the prophet, uh, Jeroboam says to this prophet, can you stay? Stay and eat with us? And he said, God gave me very clear directions. I have to leave. I am not to go back the way I came. I am not to stop and eat and drink anything. I must go to where the Lord has, back to where the Lord has called me from. So he heads out to go back. He can't eat anywhere. He can't stop anywhere. Can't seem to go the same way back. As he's traveling back, another man of God hears the story of what happened with Jeroboam. He sends his servants and says, go get that prophet. Tell him to come to my house and eat with me. So they go to get him and he says, I can't eat with you. 
because God said, I can't stop, eat, or drink. I've got to go back to the land from which I've been called. And so as he's journeying there, the, prof, the, the other prophet says, go tell him God told me this, that you had to stay. So he goes and he tells the prophet, God said you're supposed to stay. So he goes, find, he, he heeds it, says, well, if God told me to stay, I'll go back. He goes and has a meal with the other prophet. As he's eating, that prophet stands up and said, God told you not to do that. You'll die on the way home. And he gets eaten by a lion on the way home. Let's close in prayer. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, one, it's one of those scenes where you're going, what? You know, it's just absolutely bizarre, except for you realize when you get into the New Testament, here are all these prophets turning on the great prophet. Thank God we had a prophet who didn't waver, but he set his face like a flint for the cross, and he went straight to the cross and would not be distracted. Isn't that good news? And so we come to this text of Scripture. The purpose of the Sabbath is to point us to the one who can heal and restore us from our sin. Listen to what Tim Keller says about the Luke uh, text where Jesus heals the man. It says, why does Jesus, one of the other Gospels, be, why does he become angry with the religious leaders? Because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken. To heal the man's shriveled harm is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. Yet because the leaders are so concerned that re Sabbath regulations be observed, they don't want Jesus to heal the man. An incredible example of missing the forest for the trees. They're insecure and anxious about regulations. They're tribal, judgmental, and self-obsessed instead of caring about the man. I just want to stop at this point and say this. Friends, the danger of your cynicism is there's people who need the healing hand of Christ on their life. And I need to be healed of my cynicism so I can see who Christ has called me to serve and see him heal and restore the broken. That's why he came. You agree? So let, let's just talk for a moment briefly um, about how I get rid of my cynicism. And here's the answer, only with the help of God. Um, it's, it's difficult, but God has come to help you fight the battle. So let me give you a few anti-cynicism tactics. There's probably more, but here's a few of them. The first thing is ask God to heal you, right? That's what's going on. We got our withered hands <laughs> pointing at everybody else. We can't save ourselves. Ask God to heal you. Christ came for cynics. Pray for gospel hope to grasp you as you read the hope of the gospel in scripture. We've been trying to do that this morning. You say, God, help me to see the Savior more than the sin. Help me to see the power of God to rescue and deliver rather than the, the depth and the brokenness of sin. You are mighty to save. Help me to have the hope of the gospel. So you're praying that God would allow you to have hope. So how do I do that? How do I pray? I think you take the gospel like we talked about last week. You preach the gospel to yourself, but you preach the gospel into life. And one of the things, I'll give you a few things. You and I need to remember the but gods of the Bible. So I... I uh, preached in a church in Memphis one time and it was a new building opening and they had a big uh, handmade wooden pulpit. One of the young guys in the church built it. It was very intricate. It was a beautiful piece of artwork that he had done. But on the, the side of the pulpit that only the preacher could see were the words, but God. And I thought, that's good. 
every time you get up, it doesn't matter what you see, doesn't matter what you see in the mirror, doesn't matter what you see in the response of people, <laughs> doesn't matter what's going on around you, how hard you get, the, the way to answer the cynicism is what you see in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Is that good news? I need to hear the but gods of the Bible. God, show me that the narrative of the scripture is of a motley crew of sinners for the sons of Adam going astray a time and time again, but the true uh, second Adam coming in and marching his way to Calvary in victory. But God, we need to hear that God is greater than all our sin. We need to pray that God would fill us with hope. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. We can do it for you. We can do it for me. We need to sing that to each other. We need to review our conversion regularly. That's another but God in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. You are hateful, hating one another, deceived, disobedient, but God being rich in mercy, right? Love with which he loved us caused us to be born again. Isn't that great news? Made us alive through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Who's the Savior? The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are coming in with the, uh, the power of all eternity and all the wisdom and all the goodness and rescuing sinners. That's your story. Don't forget it. If you forget the miracle of that you're a, a sinner saved by grace, then you'll get cynical pretty quick with everybody else. But if it's fresh, if you can stop and wonder, that's why we try to take communion pretty regularly. We're wanting to do that more and more. We're going to do that to, to put it in front of us. Friends, there is one testimony at Waterbrook Church. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do we agree? Amen. And we need to major on the promises of God. This week as I was uh, just doing devotions, I read Spurgeon's morning and evening. I think it was Thursday morning. And this is what Spurgeon wrote. He said, our heavenly father delights to cash his own notes. Never let the promise rust. Draw the word of promise out of its scabbard and use it with holy violence. Think not that God will be troubled by your importunately uh, reminding him of his promises. He loves to hear the outcry of needy souls. Friends, we have been given, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, precious and very great promises. You want to beat cynicism? Believe the promise of God. Go to the, the well of God's promises. Repeat the promises of God over your own self and over the world. He will have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation because his son is worthy. Right? That's the good news of the gospel. Second, I've got to tell you this. This is crucial. Risk, compassionate gospel community. Another way I'd say it is spend less time on social media where you can get a tainted view of the world and get into the real lives of human beings where you realize the real story of individual after individual in need of a savior. Ephesians 4, <laughs> uh, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Will people let you down? Of course, till we get home. And he makes us new. But Christ won't let you down, and he won't let you go. Thank God for that. We need to be in community with one another so that we can see and say, one of the ways to remember the gospel is to live with sinners and realize how much Christ saw your sin, 
how much he sees it and doesn't let us go. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. From Four Loves, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Is that a good word? The opposite choice to not getting your heart broken is to have a hard heart. The world doesn't need more hard hearts. And then thirdly, lastly, this is not the least of them, it's the most of them, worship the triune God. Praise is the kryptonite to cynicism. Get your eye on God. See the marvel of the triune God. Go to Romans chapter 8 and say, what will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's Christ Jesus who died and, yes, rose on our behalf. Isn't that good news? And you just start going in Romans. You start reading, for by him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said... So we, we have to sing. We have to savor the Savior. We've got to tell of the glory of salvation because every day you'll get bad news. But friends, the bad news is the dying news. The good news is final and forever. And we just need to sing of a marvelous Savior. So hope fills our hearts and hardness doesn't settle in. And we look at the hardest situation and the deepest defense and we say there's a likelihood. You know, Jonah... Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he thought there's a likelihood God will show up and forgive him. (laughs) Friends, I'm going to go back to your cynicism. There's a likelihood God's going to show up and forgive him. Praise God. May it be so. There's enough bad news, nay, sayer, cynics in the world. Let Waterbrook not be that, people. Let's pray. Father, we live and breathe the air of skepticism, suspicion, pessimism, cynicism, and the gospel just cleans the air. The gospel blows it away. Your son came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. So we confess our sin today and we ask, heal us, God. Help us. Make us whole not just for our sake, but for the nations, for our neighbors, for the family member that we're alienated from. 
not just for the neighbors and the nations, but for Jesus. Let not a drop of his blood be wasted. Not an ounce of his suffering be in vain. But may all for whom his blood was shed find a Savior ready and willing to forgive the worst of sinners. Help us to sing it. Help us to trust him. Help us to be like Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.